Welcome to the Cookery by the Book podcast with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. I'm Sarah Archer, and my latest book is The Mid-Century Kitchen. Remarkably, kitchens changed very little from the ancient world through the Middle Ages. First off, what did the medieval kitchen look like? Really, until industrialization, the kitchen was kind of all about the hearth. And it was all about the sort of heat source for, um, to some extent, the house or the castle, um, the estate. And kitchens were workspaces. They were, even in the most luxurious houses you can imagine, um, they were kind of like the stables, like the domain of the household staff. So they may have been extremely well equipped, and that would have meant having lots of tools and having um, a very large hearth and a spit to make delicious roasts, um, all that sort of thing. But um, they would not have been ever considered uh, kind of comfortable places to be or pleasant places to be. They were extraordinarily hot. They were smoky. Um, and this this condition is really one of the things that led um, inventors to try to develop stoves because that um, kind of billowing smoke, um, you know, is is sort of not pleasant for anybody. And it actually sort of inspired the design of houses with sort of a separate chimney that would sort of whisk whisk the smoke away from the living space. And then in the mid-18th century, Benjamin Franklin invented the Franklin stove, which was the beginning of enclosed fire. That's right. And there were a few iterations of enclosed stoves. Basically, it was sort of the the cast iron revolution uh, that uh, led to this, and there were there was the Oberlin stove. There were all sorts of variations of this that c- kind of there were increasing refinements in efficiency and um, even decoration. They were in some cases very beautiful and kind of a lovely thing to have in the kitchen, which was a, sort of a new idea. The you know we think of appliances looking cool or looking nice as um, just part and parcel of kitchen design, um, but this was really kind of a new lovely thing that you would sort of have this decorative. Um, cast iron object in your kitchen and be freed to some extent from, you know, all that smoke and, you know, making the room a more pleasant place to be. And then we go to the first refrigerator for the home in 1913. And now that was the real game changer. It it was a total game changer because it really revolutionized the way people could shop and the idea that you could stash leftovers, you could sort of plan ahead a little bit. Um, It was normal to sort of have to go shopping for produce or meat or dairy products every day. Um, And the idea that you could kind of, um, you know, sort of plan your week a little bit with the the advent of a refrigerator was revolutionary. Not everybody had them. It was pretty rare to have one when they first came out, just like television or anything else. But um, yeah, that completely revolutionized shopping and cooking. I remember my grandma used to call it the icebox. Yes. My mother grew up with an icebox and it was literally like the Iceman would come to the door and with a gigantic block of ice. And that was, you know, I mean, it was probably not as efficient as uh, today's Frigidaire, but it was, yeah, I mean, that completely um, was just a fixture of a lot of people's homes and not having a freezer also, which was kind of, um, which was rare in the 40s and 50s. I love the idea of home economics. Describe domestic science. (laughs) Domestic science is this wonderful, um, I think of it as being kind of, um, 
it's sort of the ancestor of Martha Stewart, kind of um, a whole field of study that was very serious, that was taken very seriously. And we tend to kind of giggle at it nowadays, the idea of we remember, you know, our moms or grandmas in, you know, home economics class. And you think of like people with beehive hairdos, like making cookies. And it's kind of um, the idea that you would do that in school seems odd to us nowadays. But um, domestic science was an outgrowth of um, a couple of fields of um, chemistry and food science and hygiene. And there was a lot of concern in the second half of the 19th century. There were people like um, Catherine Beecher, who is the sister of Harriet Beecher Stowe, um, with her sister designed um, kind of the ideal rational kitchen with the idea that um, increasing industrialization um, and, you know, more people living in cities, it would be um, women would really need, um, you know, optimal workspaces and the idea of kind of separating things um, just at the moment when germ theory was coming into play that kind of, you know, oh, maybe it's not a good idea to have raw meat, you know, kind of sitting around where you're also, you know, making making bread and, you, you know, want to separate these things. Um, and it entered into the school system. It also um, borrowed some logic from the factory. So there's this funny thing where, on the one hand, the Victorian home is the sanctuary, and it's the place where you come home, you know, your wife and if you're if you're a man, your your wife and children are there and it's cozy and it's sort of away from the the dirty outside world of politics and business and all that stuff. And the home is your, you know, kind of um, peaceful sanctuary from all of that. But a woman named Christine Frederick um, around World War One studied the work of an industrial scientist named um, uh, Frederick Taylor. It's always, I always get a trip on that a little bit because their name is Frederick. Are so, Frederick. <laughs> Frederick. There's a lot of Fredericks. Um, who did motion studies and would kind of work with companies like Bethlehem Steel and kind of say, okay, you have workers doing this and that, and you need to kind of, you know, reduce this space by two feet. It'll make it more efficient and kind of almost look at the choreography of work and say, you know, how can we set up this factory so that it's fewer steps or it's, you know, easier for the workers to do this or that. She applied that to the kitchen and designed an ideal modern, you know, circa 1916, um, kitchen that would make it easier for women to get everything done that they needed to do. Um, and this was kind of considered feminism. I mean, we would think of that as being kind of like, you know, regressive, like, you know, well, who, why is it making life better for women? Because really everybody should pitch in in the kitchen regardless of gender. But, um, this was really a revolutionary idea at the time. And it paves the way for kind of the work triangle. If you've ever heard of that, um, that term for kind of um, the optimal position of the stove, the sink, and the the worktop. I have to wonder about the fact that she said housework was a profession back in 1912, yeah. and how was it received by everyone? I think seems radical. It seems radical. It seems. I mean, it's and it's with the the hindsight of a hundred years. It's also we see it so differently that it's almost you know. I mean, it, she was extremely popular. Um, people loved her book. Um, I don't believe my, I have not run across any, um, commentary about her that suggested people thought she was some sort of like feminist radical at the time. Like, you know, people didn't, it wasn't kind of like she was a suffragette in a sense. It was more kind of like, like, oh, this really like smart young woman is doing this really cool design. And of course there's the irony that she herself was a professional, like she was doing 
non-domestic work. You know, that was kind of the, the work of her life, but that was kind of, and that was true for um, a great many women designers, uh, scientists, chemists who devoted their um, professional lives to home economics. So you can't understand the mid-century without looking at the 20s and 30s. Describe the ideal 1920s kitchen. So that is really like the golden age of hygiene. Um, there's this moment in the 20s when a couple of things are happening. One, after years and years and years of everything being made of wood, um, maybe kind of a hodgepodge of kitchen, quote unquote, furniture, you might have sort of a worktop um, a Hoosier cabinet where you kept your flour and sugar, that kind of thing. Um, suddenly there start to be these kind of bright white enameled surfaces. And it's almost like kitchens start to look like hospitals. Um, there's this real concern around the time of sort of following World War One and the Spanish flu and a real robust understanding of germ theory, thinking like, okay, we really need to turn kitchens from these kind of homespun spaces into almost like little laboratories. So the kitchen, the ideal kitchens that you often see in magazines, like if you look at, um, uh, you know, house beautiful and, and print ads for appliances are, um, kind of almost clinical and they're not usually brightly colored. Um, so you see lots of tile, lots of surfaces that are easy to clean. Um, and, but it's funny cause they also retain a connection to furniture. So you might see, a sink that has sort of lovely tapered capriole legs as though it were a chair or a table. Um, so it doesn't yet look kind of mechanized in the way that it starts to do later. In the 1930s, all of that changes because streamlining transforms the look of, you know, everything from toasters and pencil sharpeners to cars and refrigerators. And um, it comes from the automotive industry. Um, the designers of appliances start to borrow um, the look and feel of streamlining to give these devices the look of something high tech and new. And it's, you know, Raymond Lowy's refrigerator, the cold spot for Sears, um, Norman Bell Getty's designs, um, a stove that kind of conceals all of the guts. So instead of things like um, the monitor top refrigerator, which is one of the very early uh, sort of popular refrigerators from GE, you, you can kind of see there's a giant condenser on the top of it. And it's kind of this, it looks to our eye very clunky. Um, the 30s appliances conceal all of that. So you don't see um, kind of all of the machinery. And it has, they have very smooth, um, you might say elegant sort of casings. They look um, almost like the components of a train car. They're kind of styled to look uh, that, you know, kind of 1930s deco glam silhouette. Um, and this is also the moment when standardized counter heights come into play and standardized cabinets. So that instead of your, your kind of personal collection of, you know, furniture that can store things and worktops, you have a kitchen that is kitted out with um, kind of an intentionally uniform set of cabinets. And that totally transforms the look um, of the space and, you know, gives it that kind of signature look that we are used to. So fast forward to July 24th, 1959, where Richard Nixon and Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev got into an argument about women, kitchen appliances, and the American way of life. This cracked me up. So during a World's Fair style exhibition in New York City, the two leaders had this conversation. It was actually in Moscow. Sorry. Oh, it was? FYI. Yeah. That's it, even... It was Funnier. It's even funny. I know. <laughs> so Nixon wanted to show off the spiffy new kitchen and Khrushchev shot back, 
we have such things. And then Nixon said, we like to make life easier for women. And then Khrushchev said, your capitalistic attitude toward women does not occur under communism. <laughs> Talk a bit about this exchange. I I love this this exchange so much. And it's just, it. I think if you look at it in the context of even kind of looking back a few decades to Christine Frederick, um, you know, Nixon is kind of echoing the sort of the home economics theory that, you know, all of these new devices and all the, this, you know, industrial innovation is good for women. And of course, in the 1950s, it is like the the pinnacle of like, you know, men are home from the war, people are buying Levittown houses and nesting and women are at home, like capital H homemaker. You know, it, it, the idea of being um, professional is, is uh, considered a little eccentric at this time period at best. And Khrushchev is, you know, giving him almost what we would think of as like a feminist argument, like that, you know, you're, you're essentializing, like who says women belong. And I think it's fair to say that Soviet women, although they were um, fairly well represented in the sciences. There actually was a fairly high proportion of women working in kind of what we would call STEM, um, medicine and, and the natural sciences in the Soviet Union. Um, it, you know, it was just as sexist as any place else on earth, you know, in the 1950s. So the idea that Soviet women were all, you know, kind of relying on their husbands to load the dishwasher <laughs> or what have you, the communal dishwasher, um, is probably totally ridiculous. But I thought it was very savvy of Khrushchev to, um, to kind of zero in on that as, as a weak point in the conversation. In the 1930s, working class women left domestic service in droves, leaving middle class women to take on their own housework. Julia Child described these middle class women as servantless. <laughs> How did this affect the way households were run? So it's a couple of things. It's one is that People who had lots of help before then probably continued to have lots of help or, or help to some extent. And the idea, this kind of um, mythical population of people who kind of used to have lots of help and then suddenly didn't and then were left, you know, helpless, not knowing how to, you know, work the stove, I think was relatively small. What was more common was for people who had been working class or working poor to start to become more successful and have more means um, in the post-war period and to have a brand new kitchen if they bought, you know, a Levittown house or uh, were living out in the burbs somewhere um, and suddenly be living a new lifestyle. And in a sense, they were a new kind of person. They were the American middle class, that kind of bedrock of middle class um, people that was booming in the post-war era. So servantless is kind of a brilliant term because it describes, in a sense, like a, a new kind of person. So somebody who um, perhaps, you know, would not have thought to entertain a lot um, decades earlier, uh, maybe in the 1950s and 60s, they're reading about fondue and maybe think it would be fun to have people over and their kitchen is attractive and maybe in kind of a fashion color. So you can sort of have people over for informal dining in your kitchen in this kind of, um, this new way. So it transformed the, the, the lady of the house, shall we say, to use an, an antiquated term into a new kind of hostess. I would say. And women's magazines really played into this. There is a lot of advice in the 50s and 60s about 
entertaining in this kind of way, things that you can do ahead if you're kind of doing it all yourself. And, you know, foods that that keep, which is the, the signature <laughs> culinary innovation of the post-war era, <laughs> things that you can kind of leave for a couple of days. And, and ways that you can kind of dazzle people, you know, sort of exploring different kinds of culinary traditions that we would not think of as terribly exotic now, but, uh, you know, 70 years ago were, were uh, magazine worthy because of their novelty. Speaking of foods that we'll keep, talk about the innovation of Tupperware. Oh my goodness, this is one of my favorite things. I um, was fascinated by the idea of the Tupperware party because this is something that by the time I was a kid, I was um, that had all that stuff had kind of fallen out of favor, and it was kind of getting back to let's use glass because it's better for you or better for the environment. And of course, as a child of the 80s, I was kind of like obsessed with plastic and think like, what is this? What are these t- Avon Avon ladies and Tupperware parties? What is this world that existed 20 yeah. years ago? The, the plastic that is used to make them was um, a World War II innovation. And it had originally been used um, to protect wires um, in telecommunications. And uh, like so many things, it was kind of like at the end of the war, what do we do with this? You know, what civilian peacetime application can we come up with? And Earl Tupper designed the first Tupperware. And one of the reasons for the parties is because that smell of that sort of plasticky smell that we are all very used to because it's all around us all the time was was totally alien to people in this time period because there just was not a lot of plastic on the market. People were kind of not super into it. They were kind of like, oh, I don't know if this is safe or it's just weird. It doesn't really go well with food. So the parties were a way of showing it and kind of almost like playing with it in a domestic setting. Like you can, you know, this this is how you could use it if you bought some in somebody's house. And so it became um, kind of like Avon, sort of a, a kind of domestic retail fixture of the time period. So I thought this was another game changer. Describe the change in mentality in terms of thinking about durable goods as consumable. Oh, yeah. This is another big one that actually is like, like so many things about the post-war era is like secretly really from the 20s. And there's this long, you know, kind of decades long gap between um, the the modernism and kind of um, industrial thinking of the 20s because of the Depression and the World Wars. There was an advertising man, a sort of a madman, so to speak, of, of that era, the 1920s, named Ernest Elmo Calkins, who wrote a book called Consumer Engineering um, during the Depression. And basically, it was a manifesto for planned obsolescence. And he was arguing that things like toothpaste and shaving cream that you kind of naturally use up, we need to start thinking of durable goods as things that you can use up. So a new color or a new shape or a new feature, you know, new and improved, all of that stuff. We have to start kind of baking in those qualities. Otherwise, people won't buy things as often as we would like them to. So the advent of annual styling, which was really big early on in the auto industry, where you would have, um, you know, a whole new palette of love, cool colors every year and, you know, new fins or new features, um, cup holders, you know, in cars takes over kitchen appliances. And this is partly because Weird though it may sound, there was a strong connection between the auto industry and and the world of kitchens. General Motors owned Frigidaire during this time period, and 
if you went to Motorama to see all the new concept cars, you might also see the Kitchen of Tomorrow and see, you know, all the features. So they were presented as being kind of part and parcel of the design innovation and the new styling and the idea that there's a new a new color palette that's must have for the kitchen. And as a result of that, if you're looking at old houses, which we were a couple of years ago in Philly, and it was sort of immediately like, oh, this is like 1968, you know, <laughs> or this is 1972, um, you can tell because of the appliances. Because there was such a kind of, it's like archaeological layers. Like you can tell when a kitchen was done um, by just by looking at the color. On page 206, you have an incredible photo of the classic brown and orange kitchen in the Brady Bunch house. <laughs> oh, I love Brady Bunch house. I was so excited to hear that HGTV was going to renovate the home to its original splendor. That show kind of brings home the fact that life happens in the kitchen, don't you think? Absolutely. And that is that when I was working on this book, I immediately I started thinking a lot about all the different TV shows where that the standard kind of set where you have like a bisected apartment or house very often features the kitchen. And if you go way back to like, I love Lucy, there's, you know, a lot of like the the funny gags happen in the kitchen. Um, But the Brady Bunch to me is quintessential because it's almost at the center. And because there are so many kids, it is a a perfect illustration of the way that the kitchen became a living space. And so it wasn't just a place to make toast in the morning or make dinner. It was, you know, science experiments and homework and having a heart to heart talk and, you know, playing games and, you know, doing baking experiments and all that, all the kind of shenanigans that the kids get up to on the show. So much of it happens in that kitchen and becomes kind of almost like a creative lab for, for the kids to kind of do their thing, um, which I, I think was true for a lot of a lot of people and still is. I want to talk to you about a couple of the cookbooks featured in this book. Mm-hmm. There's the Can Opener Cookbook, mm-hmm. a guide for gourmet cooking with canned or frozen foods and mixes by Poppy Cannon. <laughs> I love that name. Added the great. Do you know her backstory? She has no. a fascinating backstory. She she honestly is worthy, I feel like, of like a Netflix series. Her life, she's from South Africa, or she was from South Africa. She uh, was a white South African who moved to the U.S. She ended up in um, a romantic affair with a man who was very high up in the NAACP, and this was considered very, he was African-American. And, oh. Uh, it was, yeah, so she was kind of in not exactly in the scandal pages, but she was kind of a, 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 a person of note in the news on top of being a cookbook editor or a food editor and writing all these books. And it was all about kind of being glamorous and saving time. And she, you know, if there are photos of her that she was very chic and, you know, always had like really cool hairstyles. And it is in certain ways, like the anti 1950s cookbook, but at the same time, it's almost perfect. So on the one hand, and it gets to this tension between, you know, we we want you to be in the kitchen all the time, because that's your job as an American housewife and mom. But all of these innovations that we want you to buy are going to make it easier for you. So it's sort of like walking that line between making it you know, not too easy, just like a little bit more easy. And Poppy Cannon is takes it to the nth degree and just says like, why? Why bother making things from scratch when you can just create, you know, the like a complete meal from shelf-stable food? A cookbook that I have, Dishes Men Like from 1952. And I made the 30-minute noodle goulash that's on page 39. And was it good? <laughs> it, it was kind of bland, I'm not surprised. Um, yeah, in 1952. I mean, it's it's this is sort of uh, the era when um, people maybe had salt and pepper in the house and not a lot of other 
spices and flavors. But this cookbook was kind of weird because I thought the premise was cooking for your man. But in the introduction, um, they wrote, if you have a husband who likes to cook, pamper him. I thought that was a weird way to kick off a book for that era. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like they kind of weren't sure what they were trying to say. In a yeah. way, it was sort of like, we, we, we want to sell this and we know that men like to eat. So let's write. <laughs> so then um, there was the advent of foreign or exotic cookbooks like The Art of Chinese Cooking from 1956 or Good Housekeeping's Around the World Cookbook from 1958 world. <laughs> or Simple Hawaiian Cookery from 1964. That Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, it's and it, there there are oodles of these, and there are all sorts of. Um, it is it it's kind of the confluence of like the World's Fair culture of kind of sampling these quote unquote exotic foods that you might try at the different pavilions that which I think is made permanent at um, Disneyland and Disney World. So those are kind of like permanent World's Fairs that never close, and this idea that you could kind of travel the world by, you know, going to Queens for an afternoon, and, you know, sampling all these things, which, which were of, you know, probably dubious authenticity. But that kind of, to me, really fits into the kind of gamesmanship of being a hostess. And like, this is new and different. You haven't had this before. Um, and also kind of the legacy of World War II geographically, because so much of it is about the South Pacific and what, you know, what would have been called the Far East at the time, um, looking at Asian cuisine. And nowadays, you know, in, you know, there's practically, you know, you have multiple options for like hipster Korean fast food. You know, it's like we have so much, you know, such an array of incredible food that we can get in, in even in medium sized cities and towns in this country that the idea of being able to order, you know, Cambodian takeout in 1950 would have been unheard of. But I think um, it speaks to a real curiosity. And I think that it was kind of like, I think of the post-war kitchen as kind of a, a stationary laboratory for exploring the world. So let's talk a minute about Julia Child. In the book you wrote, Child traveled the world, lived abroad, worked for her country during wartime, and learned to cook in one of the strictest culinary traditions on earth. So for her, the mid-century kitchen was not a place where industrial designers had shown mercy on her to make her inevitable lot in life easier, to save her from becoming a worn-out Mrs. Drudge. It was a creative place full of exciting challenges and good smells, good tastes, and it was where she wanted to be. Talk a bit about that. So she has, to me, one of like the most fascinating life stories. I and I think um, it's also an example of this kind of intersection of kitchen and class. Um, she did not um, grow up cooking because her family had help. Um, she came from a very well-to-do background in California, and um, had was highly, highly educated, and uh, was you know in um, the precursor to the CIA during the war, and so. Um, had kind of a worldview that was very uncommon for an American, um, much less an American woman of her generation. It was, you know, a degree of travel um, and kind of cosmopolitanness that was that was very unusual. But then decided to bring that to the masses by kind of putting her kitchen on TV. And I think one of the things that I love about her kitchen, which you can visit at the Smithsonian, and it's amazing. I love it. It's so great. It's just I think everybody should go there. Um, is that it was actually not 
it was really not like a kitchen of tomorrow or a kitchen of the future. You know, it didn't have that kind of Jetsons feeling of kind of the latest and greatest. She had, you know, the the iconic pegboard, all her different kind of nifty kitchen tools that were um, some of them quite low tech, you know, were just the old fashioned whisk, all that, that kind of good stuff. And it was not about innovation so much as mastery. And I think that she's an example of somebody who showed women that there was a real kind of pleasure, sensory pleasure and kind of cultural interest in learning to cook, that it wasn't, it didn't have to be about, um, I mean, to some tips, it, it does have to be about getting dinner on the table at a certain you know hour if you have lots of kids, but, but that it, it could also be intellectual. It could be challenging. It could be fun for you. And I think that certainly my mom responded to that watching the show when it was on PBS. And that was, um, you know, it's a way of learning about another culture to learn t- through their food. In 1963, the same year the French chef premiered, Betty Friedan identified the housewife as the chief customer of American business. It's, I find it so interesting that this happened in the same year, and, and not too far after uh, the, the Nixon-Khrushchev debate. Um, so Friedan was looking at kind of the consumer industrial complex and essentially that same planned obsolescence scheme that um, Ernest Elmo Calkins devised in during the Great Depression. It was um, that you must always be for the, the market economy to work waiting and wishing for the next thing. You you mu- in order for, you know, sales to be robust, you have to always be longing for a better dishwasher or waiting for a washer dryer or hoping that you can, you know, change out the light fixtures in your kitchen or what, whatever it is. And that that getting swept up in that longing is, you know, kind of if you're not interested in that sort of thing, which a lot of people are not, you know, naturally, is is not a substitute for a full life. And she was sort of making the point that, um, you know, there there is more to life than, um, you know, this kind of obsessive uh, perfectionism around food and design. The irony of this is that she became an avid amateur cook. Uh, throughout the 60s and early 70s. And there's actually an article called Cooking with Betty Friedan. And it's about her, you know, rediscovering the joy of making soup or something. <laughs> really, it's kind of, and it's presented as this kind of, you know, like really her of all people. But it's, I think that speaks also to this tension around women in that era who were chafing against the kind of, um, uh, the, the societally prescribed roles for women, but also maybe really loved food and loved to cook. And, you know, can you do both? Can you be both? So now for my segment called My Last Meal, what would you have for your last supper? Oh, wow. That's such a great question. I probably, I think my desert island food genre is probably Italian food. And I think if I had to choose, I, I have a, we have a, uh, we make um, Marcella Hazen's bolognese sauce in my family. That was kind of our, go, our go-to uh, sauce. So probably I would do the, the tagliatelle with bolognese, maybe a nice salad to go with it. <laughs> Where can we find you on the web and social media? So my website is www.sarah-archer.com. You can find me on Twitter at S-A-R-C-H-E-R, Sarcher, or on Instagram at Sarcherize, uh, S-A-R-C-H-E-R-I-Z-E. Thanks, Sarah, for this fascinating glimpse into the mid-century kitchen. And thanks for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Follow Susie Chase on Instagram at Cookery by the Book and subscribe at cookerybythebook.com or in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening to Cookery by the Book Podcast, the only podcast devoted to cookbooks since 2015.